Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello to Rojan fans. Welcome to episode number 345 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is November 17th, 2014. Can't believe the USC football season is almost over. The two rivalry games left. USC beats Colorado 38-30 in the Coliseum. We're going to talk to Dan Weber and Coach Harvey Hyde all about that. Got a lot of questions about the game. If you want to email us, it's podcast at uscfootball.com for any questions you have for Myself or Dan or Coach Harvey Hyde, or you call us at 206-888-6755, or you go right to our website, peristylepodcast.com, and leave a voicemail right there. We're going to bring in Coach Harvey Hyde in the first segment. What's up, Coach? How are you? I'm doing great, buddy. Glad to be back. Uh, the, uh, our podcast is something special. I enjoy doing it, and I look forward to it again this week. Yeah, it should be good. we got a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, Coach, even though the USC won. I want to thank our sponsor, Southern California tickets before we jump into it, all sctickets.com, or you can call them at 1-800-888-7287. If you need tickets for anything going on here in Southern California or across the country, go to sctickets.com, and they will take care of you. And, Coach, there are some concerns, and I think uh, we got a lot of questions that were kind of of similar nature. I'm going to play you this voicemail one that, that hits a lot of points that a lot of people were, were talking about. Here you go. Hey, Ryan. Chris from Fontana calling a long time listener. Love the show. Um, just calling to voice some frustration here. Uh, despite the win, um, just getting a really frustrated and tired of seeing this breakdown defensively in the fourth quarter, the last couple minutes of football games. I, I, I just don't understand it. I thought they looked great the first half, uh, and it just seems like, you know, in the fourth quarter, um, they just there's just a breakdown. The defense looked extremely porous. Cal was having their way with us, um, and you know, you had a couple more minutes to that football game, and you're probably looking at a tie game. So I'm um, just getting really frustrated at why this defense can't finish. Um, and uh, certainly looking forward to your insights. Um, it's kind of frustrating to, to look so dominant in the first half and then see Cody Kessler scrambling for his life at the end of the game just to take more seconds off the clock so Cal doesn't get the ball back. So, um, you know, Again, you know, it, it is a win, but it's not a feel-good win for me, and I think most of the wins this year kind of feel that way. Um, I just would like to see four quarters of football. So, anyway, looking uh, forward to your insights, uh, and uh, love the show. Bye now. Well, thank you very much, and uh, that seems to be uh, the concern of most people as far as the Trojans jumping out. In fact, if you look at their stats, in the first quarter – this entire year, they scored 129 points in the first quarter and had 29 points scored against them. So the first quarter seems to be their dominant quarter when they really get out there and, and, and get after it. In fact, their first drive in yesterday's game, or Thursday night's game, excuse me, they went 14 plays, 90 yards for a touchdown, held the ball for seven minutes, keeping the defense off the field, letting the defense rest, and uh, Cal's offense really never had a chance to get in the game. In fact, the best defense is an offense that uh, runs down the clock, utilizes uh, the ball, keeps the ball, 
Cal's offense never has a chance to get in there. Now, that reversed itself in the third quarter when it was 31-9 at halftime. Cal, or let's put it this way, SC only ran or had the ball five plays up to three minutes and 40 seconds into the left in the third quarter. So that sort of tells you where the, the momentum, the change, all started with their touchdown at the end of the half with nine seconds to go. So, yes, uh, it does concern me. And uh, if I'm a head football coach, not just USC, but just a, a head football coach, and, that, and I have a program that I have to find out why is this happening, uh, obviously, I, I know I know that Coach Sarkeesian looks at these things. At least I assume he does. I, I can't uh, second guess what he's doing in his coaching office with his staff. But if I was having a staff meeting today, I, I would say, guys, we got to look at why we can't finish. And I would look at it and say, uh, you know, we don't have to wear T-shirts to say finish. We don't have to have cheerleaders say finish. We have to find out. What is the problem? And we've got to assist these guys. It's got to be on our end, too, not just on the athlete's end. It's got to be a combination of both because coaches call the plays, coaches call the defenses, and the athletes uh, execute what you ask them to do. They execute it to the best ability. Now, if they drop a pass, like Nelson Aguilar dropped that pass, which would have been the 17th completion, it was a call. It should have been completed. It wasn't completed but we're just pointing out one incident where that happens. There are three incidents why, well, where touchdowns were called back because of penalties. Uh, that, too, may have made a difference in the final outcome of the game. One was repeated, and they did score on the next play. So you look at the overall picture, the penalties, uh, uh, and everything uh, involving the game, time of possession, uh, did we change? You evaluate your calls as an offensive staff. Did we becomes conservative in the third quarter on offense? Did we wear our defense out because we couldn't stay on the field offensively? You go back and you look. First of all, I've said the entire year, and it isn't something I just started by saying this, but it's something that I've been harping on, and I don't know if it makes a difference. It obviously didn't make any difference in the seven wins, but I've always worried about the practice time being at 8.15 in the morning when kids have to get up at 5.30 in the morning well, you know they're going to have some social time. Uh, that's why you go to college, and maybe they don't get in till 11, 12, and they're getting five hours of sleep. Maybe they're trying to catch up the, on Saturday before the game or Friday night if you're on the road. Well, I don't think your body can really recover on that. I think the best night, I used to tell my players, the best night of sleep before a game is a Thursday night rest that you get. So you practice at 8.15, and I think your body gets used to certain things, uh, eating, hungry, uh, performance, uh, your metabolism. And, and, and practicing at 8.15 and playing at, at 6 or 5 or 7.30 or, or whatever is a little bit different uh, than your practice time. I, that, I would look at that. I'm not saying that's what it is, but I would look at that as far as the energy level of your performance, the nutrition. I'd look and see what you're doing nutrition-wise which would be another thing I'd be talking to in my staff meeting. I would have my nutritionist in there. I'd have uh, all my, uh, my team doctor in there. I'd want to find out what their thoughts are on this. Are we practicing too hard during the week? You always hear during the week, we had a great practice. We went full speed. We practiced. We practiced. And we practiced hard. Are you leaving the game on the practice field? 
so that when you get to the game, if it's a midweek game or a Saturday game, are we tired because we practice too hard, especially towards the end of the season? That is something I'd look at too. Then, of course, then you got to look at your coaching adjustments at halftime. Are we making the proper adjustments? If they're taking away the run, which they obviously did in the first half, I believe they only had 29 yards rushing in the first half, then maybe we got to stay with the play-action pass and do more of what was successful. We scored all our plays. We were missiles. We went after them. We've got to make them afraid. If they're going to take the run, let's take away whatever else they give us. Uh, then uh, I'd sort of take a look, too, at the penalties and find out exactly what some of these penalties are and are they penalties that can be corrected. Now, when SC practices or USC practices, I've seen officials out there all the time. Is that are the calls the same in practice as they are in the game? I don't think so. I think you look at these officials and you see they all want to be on the NFL level. And they all want to do a perfect game. And they don't want any calls to go by that when they're graded by the coordinator, the coordinator looks at all the game films, that, oh, he missed this one or he missed that one. If you want to call a penalty and you have all these officials, they can call a penalty on every play. So you don't want to over-officiate a football game. Now, there are some penalties that's necessary to call. Uh, And there are some penalties that you don't call. Uh, there's some penalties you just let go as far as now, I don't know what the Cal player said to the referee when he stepped up and he said something, unless he called him some dirty names or something, cussed at him. But because he was too close to him, is that necessary to call? Is it necessary to call the personal foul on Kessler after that touchdown pass? I don't know. I didn't see it. But is that necessary? There are certain plays that you look at and you say, are those necessary plays? And you heard me mention this weeks ago when Oregon lost to Arizona when one of their players, 91, went over to the sideline and bowed to the crowd, and that official called a flag, and probably Oregon would have been undefeated now. Should officials determine the outcome of a game? I don't think they should. Now, Coach Sarkeesian said he's going to cut some film up or some tapes up and send it to commissioners and just get an interpretation of how or what they think. Well, that doesn't help you during a game. But I think games are getting over-officiated a little bit too much. I think that officials have got to let the kids play the game. Otherwise, kids are going to be afraid to tackle. They're going to be afraid to block. A lot of it, the game is changing. So that's my feeling as far as that side of the game. So... Uh, I think also, as you talked about momentum, I think it's very important as we use that term finish. I hate to say that, finish, but we've heard too much of that lately. But the momentum of that Cal game, if USC could have continued with its first half performance in the third quarter, would have brought great momentum into the UCLA game. Not that it won't be an exciting football game and they will come with with their ankles taped, but I agree with you. I think the game in the second half, you see less of the Trojans at which you should see. Uh, I think they become a little conservative on offense. I think on defense, when you ask four guys to rush the entire game and you don't help them with blitzes here and there to keep a guy guessing, a guy becomes comfortable. guy becomes comfortable in the pocket because uh, in the second half, Four guys get tired of going up the field, or six guys if you rotate 
defensive front guys. Every time I've seen Suva Craven rush the passer, he has caused a tip or a sack or a hurry. I saw Quentin Powell fly in there and cost, cause a hurry. You don't necessarily have to sack a quarterback, but you cause a hurry and you make him very uncomfortable. So I think you have to sometimes play a little dangerous on uh, defense. What I mean by that, go after people. Take a chance. Don't allow them to double-team Leonard Williams every single play, but they don't worry about you stunning or doing a delayed stunt when they double-team on Williams and you blow somebody by him. So I think it's some of this you have to look at, too. So it's the, the penalties, it's the overall performance, it's the play calling, it's the adjustments. It's not just one thing. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Is it they're practicing too hard? Is there food? Are they lifting too many weights? Are they, are they getting up? Are they getting the rest? These things have to all be evaluated, and I'm sure that he's doing this. At least I hope he's doing this, because I wouldn't have let this go by. Uh, Coach, you touched on a lot of things that are great stuff, and um, I wanted to talk about the defense a little bit too because Melvin had wrote in and said he saw the fourth quarter of the Cal game, and I thought and it saw that Coach Wilcox's defense at the end uh, do the same as they had done against ASU, Arizona, and Utah, give up lots of yards, points, and big plays. He wants to know, is that coaching? Is that lack of talent on the defense? And if it's a coaching team, can't they devise some new strategies for the fourth quarter to prevent comebacks? by the opposition. And I think that ties into your, what you were talking about rushing the, the passer too. Cause over the weekend I put a story up. I don't know if you got to see it yet, coach about, uh, I analyzed all the plays that you at the USC defense ran and when they blitzed and they actually blitzed more in this game than they had in any other game this season. It might've been that we kind of called them out on it <laughs> earlier in the week, but uh, they only blitzed once in the fourth quarter they blitzed, you know, three or four times in each of the other quarters, kind of uh, leading into that. But I and I noticed this too, Coach. When I watched, it, I had to watch the defensive front each time to see who was going to rush, and I would count each time. Okay, they rush four. They rush four. The, the, it was like seventy-seven percent of the time they rushed four guys. They rushed three three once, and that was the last touchdown that Cal scored. And then they rushed five like uh, four times, or, or I mean, uh, twelve times. But whenever they rushed five, it looked it was pretty obvious. Usually there was four linemen, and they rushed. And it was like you could tell who's going to rush. The other guys are backed off a little bit. And it, it was very – just from watching the press box, I knew what was going to happen. And then if – they never blitzed like a corner or a safety. They If they blitzed someone, it was Cravens from that Sam linebacker spot. Or I think they did Pollard once and uh, and Anthony Sorio once too. Or so. But you could kind of tell who was going to rush. So it was pretty – it seemed to me kind of vanilla and basic and stuff there, but I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on all that, Coach. And and what you know, Melvin's talking about the the fourth quarter kind of collapses, but also can they mix it up as far as the blitz and stuff goes? Well, you know, I obviously am one of those type of coaches that likes the blitz, that likes to mix it up, uh, that always had the philosophy on defense: you could do the wrong thing, but if you made the play, it was the right thing to do. <laughs> on, on offense. If, if you miss a play, you don't block properly, it ruins the whole play. The play doesn't work. So I'm for one that gets after it. Remember, all it takes is one offensive lineman to make a mistake, and you're through there. Only one. And if you give a lot of different looks and you get up there like you're going to come and you don't come, you drop out of there, it gives the quarterback something to think about. It gives the offensive lineman something to think about. But if you just come up and line up in the same thing every time and you don't give him any 
thing to think about, then I think their minds are more at ease and they can perform their assignment. But if you come up there and they're talking to each other and you have a guy moving here and moving that, you have the back moving from one side to the other side because you think you're going to blitz this corner, as you said, that's why they move the back back and forth to pick up a block. Uh, so if they move him back and forth, then, then move to the other side, bring the other corner. Start messing with their minds. Bring the corner up on the line of scrimmage and then move back out and don't even come. So there's a lot of ways you can play with people's minds and then take advantage of that. So uh, I agree. I think that uh, there were times where they uh, did not have the right people in the fourth quarter covering the right people. I think there were some uh, mix-ups in the coverages. And then I thought with the combination of the same type of rushing, the offensive, defensive linemen just obviously got tired. They got tired, but you got to give them help. You got to get them off the field. They were on the field the whole time during the third quarter and the fourth quarter. It was a change of game, change of momentum. When that happens, you got to change. You got to say, this isn't working. If they're going to score, let's make them work for it. And you go after something else and you hope something big happens. You get a sack. So it puts them in a situation where they're off schedule as far as what they're doing and uh you make the guy nervous and, and i like to make quarterbacks nervous okay <laughs> yeah well I, I think they did a better job of that against jared goff at least through three quarters there and then uh kind of backed off a little bit they only blitzed one time in that final quarter and and, and you, you know cal went on a 28 to 7 run uh really the the end of the first half the whole second half i agree 100 percent, ryan i'll tell you uh first of all I don't want people to think I'm negative when I'm talking. All, I, all I'm doing is giving you my opinion. If it was SC or Redlands or X school, just call X university, and I watch this game. I'm just telling you exactly what happens, and I want to congratulate it. They had a big win. Anytime you win in the Pac-12, look at Arizona State couldn't win last night. Stanford couldn't win last night. USC won. So they won by eight. They're seven and three. They're six and two in conference, and they're playing maybe for – the Southern Division Championship in the Pac-12 next Saturday, which isn't all bad. Arizona State still got to play Arizona. So uh, there's still a lot of football on the line, and uh, it looks as though the Pac-12 this year there's been more upsets and, and more games and more close games that are non-predictable. How many people really felt Arizona State was going to go to Corvallis and get beat? I didn't. I want you to know that I didn't think that. But I think this, I think Cal can beat Stanford. I don't know how many people think that. I think Cal can finish the season 7-5. Uh, and five. I really believe that. I think they will. I think Cal's a good football team. They won a lot of games. They lost a lot of close football games. So uh, you've got to look at it of the type of conference it really is, and being able to win in this conference is very important. All right. Uh, you, the one of the other things you touched about uh, touched on was the officiating, and Dennis wrote in and said, "Have you ever seen so many momentum changing penalties called in one half and on one team? We had three touchdowns taken away and a fumble recovery taken away. I felt like midway through the fourth quarter, playing against the refs and Cal had wore the team down mentally, so they started playing soft." That's uh, from Dennis. Well, you know, uh, sometimes. Uh Games get out of hand. Uh, there was a game this weekend in the community colleges. I won't mention the community college, but a team went undefeated, and they had a brawl at the end of the game. 
And it wasn't that team's fault, but that team defended itself. So that team now isn't going to be able to go to a bowl game. But you know what the rules are. If you get in a fight or you swing your arms or whatever it might be in a game, you can't play for a week. So that team is going to a bowl game. It's 10-0, and 0 and they can't go now because none of the players can play. So you've got to, as an official, take control of the game. And I thought it was a chippy game from the beginning. I didn't know that there was such a, uh, what do you call it, say, a conflict or, or competitiveness between Cal and USC. It started from the beginning. People were chipping at each other. Uh, a lot of things got a little bit out of hand. And uh, there could have been a couple of people ejected if uh, somebody didn't stop in, start it, or stop in and stop what was going on. But it got a little bit out of hand. And uh, do players uh, sort of tend to back off a little bit? They do, because coaches are ripping them when they come off the field for getting a personal foul. Or they're ripping them for, for getting a holding penalty when there's a touchdown. And, again, you're going to have a penalty on every play if you want to call it. You've got to be consistent, and sometimes you're consistent too uh, too far. Let me put it to you that way. There are some penalties I would not have called. Obviously, I would not have called a couple. Now, people are saying the one on Juju Smith when he went down inside and Mitchell caught a touchdown pass. Juju just got to learn that. He's a young player. That should have been a penalty. He just didn't execute what he was supposed to do properly. Uh, there were some holding player penalties. There were holding penalties, but then there were some penalties that, hey, please, uh, let it go. What are, you, what are you looking at? Let it go. For both teams. I'm not talking about just USC. For both teams. Let the kids play the game. It was over-officiated. The fans get testy to them when that happens. It's bad for television. Television commentators start talking about the game and other things. I don't know, but the TV crew that did broadcast this game, good guys, but, man, did they sure put USC on the spot, uh, right? I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but they set up USC for next year that they should win the Pac-12. Uh, they've got ten starters back on offense, nine starters back on defense, eight if Leonard Williams go. They got uh, tired of calling and waiting for penalties and replay and viewing a penalty. They started talking about all this stuff, and, my goodness, Really? Uh, they had really, really, I mean, not that the Trojans don't have great personnel, but they kept raving about uh, that where they, you know, were talking about that they should win the Pac-12, and they had him got through this year. <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, when, when you have a lot of delays in a game, then people start talking a lot, and people lose interest, and people leave the stadium. Like, a lot of people left the stadium at the Coliseum Thursday night. And first of all, they're mad to be there. They're not happy about being there on a Thursday night. And again, they got another Thursday night game next year. As it was announced that it's another Thursday night game on the road. I forget who it is. At least it's on the road. So, you know, at the Coliseum, it's just a Thursday night game at the Coliseum just doesn't work. Yeah. With school and everything, it just doesn't work. But uh, along with the Pac-12 rules, I guess that happens. And the way they... Uh, you know, set it up, uh, USC's going to have those Thursday night games. and UCLA's going to have a Friday night game. and just doesn't work. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was over-officiated. And, uh, they, uh, Tony Carreni, who was the coordinator of officials, has stepped down. They have a new one. I don't know who it is or what they're talking about, but I think they're just trying to get in the NFL too hard. Yeah. 
Uh, Jamal had a question. Uh, why is Sark so bad at managing the two end zone offenses? He lined up in the pistol with their back to the end zone, which developed too slow and allowed penetration. He's talking about the play that uh, the safety on Justin Davis. Then with a chance to just sneak it in, he tried a pick play, but luckily we scored with Kessler scrambling. How does a coach at this level make these simple mistakes? That's Jamal. Well, uh, the safety play, uh, I believe that Davis was Davis, I believe. I yeah. think he was in the pistol. He was, yeah. And yeah. He was in the pistol, so he's, he's about five yards deep, uh, and he's behind the quarterback. He has to run a lot of yards before he gets to the line of scrimmage, and obviously down there people are going to try to get penetration and I think it was Cleo Rogers or one of the guards pulled. And when the guard pulls, obviously, you're going to have penetration unless the center or the tackle cuts off the guy uh, that was in front of the guard. I, I think there probably was a blocking error there in the offensive line. I don't know. But, yes, a delayed play in that type of position is not good. That's why sometimes the O-I formation with reverse pivot, give to the fullback, push the ball out a little bit, or at least have a fullback ceiling for any type of penetration that comes across, then your fullback can seal it and your back can get back to the line of scrimmage. But, yes, a, deplay, a delayed play like that when your back is against the wall is not a great play. You're better off play-action passing and throwing the ball down there where you'll have a good percentage opportunity of hitting a pass and getting out of that, that difficult situation and field position that you have. So uh, that's the answer to that one. As far as the quarterback sneak or a short yardage run uh, down there when they uh, pass for a touchdown, I've always been one to believe in smash-mouth football. I've always been one to go ankle and ankle and say, you bring your lunch pail, I'll bring my lunch pail, and I'm going to smack your butt, Uh, especially when you have a short yardage situation to go. They don't really have a formation. They have showed... They're big guys in there, but they don't really believe in it. What I mean by believing in it, uh, it isn't like you go in the game and you're going to run it, okay? You do have it occasionally. They do work on it, but they don't run it. They don't believe in it as far as to the point of, hey, when we get in this formation, uh, it's over with. We're going to get a yard or we're going to get six inches. So, uh, you know, uh, they don't do that. uh, And uh, uh, what more can I say? It's, It's a philosophy. He would rather throw the ball down there in that type of situation than run uh, up up the middle or off tackle. I, I'm more for running off tackle on that play because they always submarine down there. And unless you're a quarterback and you have six inches to do, you just leap over the top and secure the football. And you get your backs coming up behind you, pushing you over the top too. And you get in there somehow. Or you find a hole where you go along the line of scrimmage, make sure you find that little seam and you get in the end zone. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm more of a, uh, a slam-it-down-your-throat guy when it's down there. I'm not a guy that really likes to uh, – I'd like to take three downs or four downs, depending what down and distance the situation is, and, and be able to get it in that way. But uh, coaches have philosophies, and uh, coaches live and die in what they do. Uh, we got a few more we'll get to real quick, Coach. Uh, Eric, speaking of philosophies, he says, what happened to the so-called fast-paced offense? Since we played Fresno State – I haven't really seen a quick up-tempo offense. The time it takes to stand around, in the time it takes to stand around, couldn't they just huddle? That's from Eric. Well, you've heard me talk about this a lot. and You've heard me get in debates uh, on the pregame show with certain 
people I work with uh, about this. Basically, USC is not a hurry-up offense now. It's a no-huddle offense. And uh, you've got all 11 people looking to the sideline to get the call of the play. It's, it's not a hurry-up offense any longer. I don't see any purpose why to line up in the line of scrimmage and why not huddle. And then, then today or this morning uh, on Trojan Brunch, uh, that question was asked. And, and I said, you know, what you do when you have a young football team like you have all those young offensive linemen in there playing, you've got one great leader, and that's Cody Kessler. And people think, oh, he's great statistics. He's got all these touchdown passes. and Yeah, he has all of that. But his number one quality is leadership. He's a point guard in basketball. What does a point guard do? Set up the play. Well, what does a quarterback do? Set up the play and take advantage and pass the ball and do what he has to do to get the play to be successful. Put the basketball through the hoop. Well, it's the same thing you do with a football team. And if you have a huddle, it doesn't have to be a long huddle. It could be just the same uh, communications you're getting from the cards and everything else, but it just goes to one guy. He calls it in a huddle. He looks at all these babies' faces, gives them the encouragement that a leader does. says, we've got to have this. Any questions, you all got the snap count, or it's check with me. Check with me. Remember that. You know what you do on this play, don't you, Juju? Good. Make sure that you do this. Remember, if he if he rolls up, I'm going to hit you in the seam. Just a last-minute word to somebody, just as a reminder. Ready, break. And go to the line. You'll run as many plays that way. But you'll look eyeball to eyeball to people, especially the young players. And you bring them a sense of, of, of okay, I'm okay. Dad said I could do this. Or I'm doing it right. And after the play, you get him in the huddle and say, great play, great pass blocking. You guys did a great job of pass blocking. That was on me. Or the, the reason that play worked, you guys really blocked it up well. I just think that little bit of communication to your players, never seen your players again until you get off the field. I think there's a lack of communication. Now, of course, Coach Sarkeesian has his philosophy. So, again, this is just my opinion as far as what I would do with young players who need a, lot, need a lot of help. And I'm not big, really, maybe, on that offense. Uh, all right, Coach, let's see. We've talked about the fast pace. I want to talk, we talked about the philosophy. One player that we've seen a lot more of because of the injury to J.R. Tavai is Scott Felix. And Tark had a question. Is Scott Felix on the verge of breaking out? Well, you know, I think he gains confidence every week. I think he gets off the football well. He plays hard. I want you to know, this kid plays hard. He's a hard player. It's not like he's holding back. He's going 100% every down. He's number 47. For all of you that watch the game, uh, I think he's giving you everything he has on every single play. I really do. Uh, he's going to be, uh, he's as good as he can get. He, I mean, he can't run any faster. He can't hit any harder. He gives you every single thing he has. And that's all you can ask a player to do. Now, once in a while, he gets a little bit too anxious and he loses contain. And the quarterback or whoever gets around him, you can't do that. you got to be disciplined. He did that in the Utah game, if you remember when, never mind, Randy, uh, well, uh, Whatever thing, Travis Wilson went down the sideline uh, before the last play of the game. You can't forget your rules. You can't forget your responsibilities. And uh, this is part of growing up. 
and he'll learn off of that. And that's the way young players learn is from their mistakes, not what they do right. So I think he's going to be a good player, and, and if you're related to him and so on, I think he's doing a great job. And then one last one for you, Coach Earl in West L.A. Uh, Saturday night, of course, Arizona State lost. Um, so that was kind of a surprise, but changed the whole uh, outlook of how USC could win the Pac-12 South. He goes, now that the race for the Pac-12 South title is wide open again, can you explain what has to happen after we beat UCLA for the title to be ours? Thanks, and fight on, Earl in West L.A. Well, thank you very much for that question. I have to figure it out here while we well, go along. Well, here, I, I'll, think I'll, what, I'll, huh? I can I can go over with the, you know, yeah, coach. Well, you, you help me out with this because I know Arizona has to beat Arizona State. Okay, that's yeah. number one, right? Well, okay, so it changed when when Arizona State lost to Oregon State. There was two possibilities that USC could make the title game. One, Arizona State would have to lose twice, and USC would have to win out because there's a tiebreaker between Arizona State. And USC, that Arizona State would win because Arizona State won that game with the Hail Mary. Coincidentally, if that Hail Mary didn't happen, USC would be in first place alone and control their own destiny. But they, that, that didn't happen, obviously. But because Arizona State did lose one game, you didn't expect them to lose to Oregon State. Now, if Arizona State loses to either opponent, it's not just Arizona. They have two Pac-12 games left. They'll lose either one of those, but one of them is Washington State. So, you know, could, could it happen? Sure. They Washington State beat Utah. But if they lose one of those games and USC beats UCLA, USC would win the South. USC six and two would be seven and two. Right now, Arizona State's five and two. They would end up six and uh, six and three. So they would, you know, and and UCLA, they would have the you know tiebreakers over them. They'd win. They'd so, have a three three losses too. Yeah, they'd have three losses also. So the the good thing now is that USC can win straight out, but Arizona State needs to lose a game, and USC needs to win one. Before, the likely scenario was a three-way tie with USC, Arizona, and Arizona State all being 7-2, and two, and then they could win the tiebreaker for a three-way tie uh, with the same amount of losses as Arizona State because they beat Arizona by having a win over UCLA if they finish fourth. So the tiebreaker is really weird. A three-way tie at the top, who beat the number four team? And that would have been USC, so they would have won that tie. But that's now out the window. There's not going to be a three-way tie. So that that USC needs that kind of weird tiebreaker. So now it's basically you need Arizona State to lose one game and USC has to win again. I think all you have to worry about, Coach, is beating UCLA. I think if you don't you know, represent the Pac-12 South because Arizona State wins out, that's one thing. But if you beat UCLA, to me, that's the most important thing. Well, I think you have to just worry about what you have to do. Yeah. First of all, you have a real challenge of what you have to do. And while you play that football game, you don't know what's happening in the other stadium. So, and if you don't take care of what you have to do, it doesn't make any difference what's happening in the other stadium. So what you do is take care of what you have to do, and then you can find out what happened in the other stadium. And uh, i tell you, they, the Washington State can beat anybody in any given day, and Arizona certainly can too. So, uh, you know, uh, Anything can happen in college football, especially in the Pac-12. That's what's so great about the Pac-12. It's absolutely fantastic. Look what Utah has done coming from the Mountain West Conference now into the Pac-12. Unbelievable. And look what TCU has done in the Big 12 going from the Mountain West Conference to the Big 12. Unbelievable. It is really a conference that is 
great. Look what the coaching changes have done at Arizona with Rich Rodriguez. Look what the coaching changes have done at Cal with uh, Sonny Dykes. Look what it's done with Mike Leach at at, uh, Washington State. I mean, what a conference. What excitement. Uh, any given day, anybody can beat anybody, and I really, uh, I really think it's fabulous. It's college football at its best. All right. Well, hopefully that explains everything there. I know there was a lot of confusion about that, so uh, we'll let you know. Now that's pretty something. easy to me. Now you got to root for Washington State and Arizona, and stay with SC. And yeah, you, and you can be all right. Before it was complicated because of the three-way tie and the tiebreaker. So now that's kind of just all thrown out the window. Now USC has to win. Arizona State has to lose. Pretty simple. Pretty simple, buddy. Yeah. Pretty simple. All right. Well, Coach, thanks for uh, coming on. We really appreciate getting all your insights and stuff. And uh, hope you enjoy Rivalry Week, a couple weeks of Rivalry Week for USC. And we will talk to you again next Monday. Brian, again, thank you very much. Buckle up, everyone out there. Have a great week. It's a great week. Uh, and uh, uh, kickoff is at 5 p.m., in case you didn't know. Yes. ABC, National Television. How could it get any better? Should and be, playing in the granddaddy of all of them. Wow. Should be great. We're where Coach Hyde is the mayor of Pasadena, so it's always good to go up there for a game at the Rose Bowl. So thank you, I'm Coach. Gonna, oh, I'm going to parachute in with the football. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. All right, so thanks, Coach, and we're going to be back in a minute talking to uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. You've been listening to the Pear Style Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Pear Style Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. We're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. As promised, uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber is joining the show. He was in the Coliseum Thursday night sitting next to me in the press box checking out USC's 38-30 win over California. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Uh, looks like an exciting week. Uh, it's hard to even imagine that uh, uh, rivalry week uh, starts out with thanks to Arizona State's loss last night and Chile Corvallis, uh, five teams in the Pac-12 South still have a chance to win the Pac-12 South. That's just uh, so that puts a little bit of an extra, uh, you know, excitement into the uh, USC and UCLA game. Certainly does. Yeah, we talked with Coach Harvey Hyde at the end of the last segment about basically for USC, USC has to beat UCLA and also Arizona State to lose either to Washington State or Arizona. So it's pretty simple now compared to what it was before. There was there was at least a couple options before. Now it's basically you need Arizona State to lose one, and USC, of course, has to win. Now there are the other ridiculous options. For example, you could have four or five teams tied at six and three, uh, for example. Uh, if, uh, you know, I mean, there, it's, I mean there, there actually is still a possibility of a four-team tie and a five-team tie. Wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> weird things have to happen for that to take place. And USC fans have to be thinking, you got to beat UCLA and get to 7-2. and two. USC would be the first team at 7-2. and two. And then uh, Arizona State has to lose one of its last two games. They uh, play Washington State this week at home. 
you wouldn't think there's much of a chance of that. But then they've got to go to Arizona uh, the following uh, Friday, actually. So both of the games that maybe will matter for USC the next week when USC is you know, playing Notre Dame will be on Friday. UCLA will play uh, Stanford, and um, uh, Arizona will play Arizona State both on Friday. So uh, USC might know where uh, where they stand uh, before before the Notre Dame game. But, uh, I mean, there's just a whole lot. Uh, I mean, USC finally got, uh, got a couple of breaks, I think, last night. Um, uh, Arizona State losing in a game nobody expected them to, even though it was pretty darn chilly for those guys from Tempe up there in Corvallis. And then Arizona held on. Although, again, if USC, I mean, the three-way tie with Arizona and Arizona State can't happen now because Arizona State has, um, and USC, because Arizona State already has two losses. So yeah. uh, that was the one advantage of Arizona winning. Now all USC needs is Arizona to beat Arizona State, nothing else. And then some people are kind of confused. I get a lot on Twitter. Um, they're asking about the Notre Dame game. That doesn't matter at all for the Pac-12 race. I, don't, I mean, maybe there's like an eighth tiebreaker somewhere, but that does, you know, the, the Notre Dame game yeah. doesn't matter. Your rankings don't matter. And People are asking if USC does go on to win the conference, but they're not part of the playoff committee, which they wouldn't be at the playoffs. They'd either go to the Fiesta of the Cotton or the Peach Bowl. So that's just kind right. of some of the questions people are asked. Yeah, I think the Fiesta, you, you got to think if they would win and not get into the play, you would think they'd be really attractive for the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah. Because that would mean they'd be coming off wins over uh, UCLA, Notre Dame, and Oregon. I mean, you know, what's not to like if you're the Fiesta Bowl at that point? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get to We got a lot of questions, so I want to get to them. Uh, first one, and this has kind of been a common theme. It says, it seems like USC's had a good game plan coming into most games, but doesn't make adjustments as well as their opponents during the game. Any clue why this is happening so often? Is it poor coaching, poor player discipline, or sanctioned related fatigue? Maybe a bit of all three. That was from Chad and Riverside. Also, Chris and Cambria had basically the same question, so I want to let let you guys know those two guys asked uh, that kind of a question. Yeah, and that's the question. You know, we, we asked Sark. Uh, uh, he did his uh, conference call on Friday, and uh, you know, they come out and, and throw the ball thirty-three times in the first half, and uh, you know, up thirty-one to two before they give up that last touchdown. And you think, you know, what happens in the third quarter when they run it, I guess, six times and they threw it five times. It's just like it was a whole different game. You know, they they ran, uh, they ran, threw it 33 times in the first half against Cal and completed 25, and they, um, they ran it just 15 times. So then they come out and they run it more than they pass it. And Sark says that he's afraid that if they come out and throw the ball, and don't move it, or get three and out, no time will come off the clock. And he's worried about the whole team and the defense and all that. Now, you know, my thinking is that's probably not the way to think uh, in terms of, uh, you know, worrying about, you know, they're completing 70% of their passes. I wouldn't come out probably and think we're going to go three and out throwing the ball against a team who set up its defense basically to stop your run game. Everybody's gone to school on the Boston College game, and they figure if they stop USC's run, USC will still keep trying to run the ball, and maybe they'll get a chance. Maybe they'll have a chance, and uh, you know that's what what happened uh, in, in the Cal game. USC 
came out and tried to establish the run uh, against a team that was slanting in ways in which this young offensive line hasn't seen anybody this year. And they weren't handling it well. And, you know, my question to Sark was, well, why don't you, you know, work on that after the game? You know, why don't you just keep throwing the ball? They're pass blocking really well. And Cal showed no, no ability, you know, to stop the USC's, you know, multitude of receivers. And, and Cody was, you know, as sharp as you, you would want him to be. But uh, it, it just seems like they're determined to do what the way they want to do it. Uh, for example, I know you charted the blitzes. And in the first three quarters, I think USC blitzed uh, 11 times. The final quarter, they blitzed just once. They gave up 107 yards in passing situations without a blitz and two touchdowns. First three quarters, they had given up just uh, uh, one touchdown in passing situations when USC was blitzing more often. So, uh, you know, you figure it out that some of the, the calls don't seem to be in line with the way the game is going. And, uh, you know, it's a problem, I think. It seems to be an ongoing problem. But it's uh, it's kind of a coaching philosophy that maybe doesn't agree. You know, I might not agree with it, and, you know, our callers might not agree with it, <laughs> but uh, it seems to be where they are. I do think it's a number, as much as Sark says, it's not a numbers thing. I think he's always thinking about uh, – you know, fatigue setting in, but, uh, you know, they end up in the same place uh, pretty much, having to fight somebody off at the end of the game because they haven't kept scoring and they haven't stayed aggressive, <clears throat> doing the things that they're doing really well. That I mean, Cal had no ability whatsoever to get to Cody, had no ability to stay with almost any of USC's wide receivers, uh, you, you probably just have to keep doing that rather than, you know, say, well, we're going to run the ball when you pretty much demonstrated that for whatever reason you can't block what Cal's doing on defense. So, uh, you know, there it is. <laughs> the, uh, and, and, and I don't want to, like, harp on it too much, but, I mean, these are the kind of questions we're getting, Dan. We talked a lot about it with Coach Harvey Hyde. Here's uh, Sir Eric of Troy and Rancho Cucamonga kind of similar thoughts is I'm totally disgusted by the way USC finishes games. It appears to me that Sark and the offense go into quote unquote survival mode way too early in the game and want to just run the clock down or out seemingly starting in the third quarter. Wilcox in the defense goes into a soft coverage that would let a junior high school team score on their final two or three drives at the end of the game. Why does Pat Hayden see this happening like the rest of us do? And might he take it upon himself to share his disapproval of this? Uh, with the head coach like so many of us wish we could. Is there such a thing as a midseason performance review for the USC coaching staff and head coach in particular? Please give this coaching staff a quote-unquote letter grade based on what you've seen thus far. Fight on, and that's from Sir Eric of Troy. Yeah, I mean, and the, the shame is they obviously are putting together pretty decent game plans for the first half. I mean, the, the the first quarter score out you know scoring is is just absolutely ridiculously one-sided in USC's favor, which probably says something about USC's talent differential. They've got more really good players than most of the teams are playing, and uh, when they play to their strengths, uh, they're really uh, in pretty good shape. Do they start thinking in survival mode coming out the second half? Yeah, they it sure looks like they do, and again. 
as much as Sark says, I'm not going to use the numbers in, as an excuse, it, it seems like the numbers become something of an excuse. Uh, and to be honest with you... you like a rationale along, for it. Like a rationale more than an excuse even. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, yes. He wouldn't, yes. He wouldn't look at it as an excuse. Uh, uh, he would look at it as saying, no, no, this is the best thing. And he said it. This is the best thing for our team uh, to run the ball and run clock. The problem is, if you don't run the ball and get first downs, if all you get are six running plays in the third quarter and five pass plays, you aren't running the clock and you're not scoring. Uh, you're probably better off if, you know, that's what you have to do. If you, uh, you know, drive the ball down the field, throwing it, you know, you're sure you're going to have some incompletions, but at the, at the pace they're completing passes, uh, USC can, can run drives that eat the clock throwing the ball almost as well as, you know, some teams can do it running the ball. They can probably eat more clock throwing the ball successfully than they can running it unsuccessfully. Uh, that seems to be where, you know, there, there seems to be a stubbornness there. Uh, for those who, you know, weren't very pleased with the stubbornness and uh, uh, previous coaches, coaches here, uh, there's a stubbornness with, uh, with you know, personalities are, you know, couldn't be any di- more different, but there's a stubbornness uh, in, in terms of the thinking that, uh, so, you know, we may think one way, but the coach doesn't. And whether, you know, the athletic director or anybody else has, has the ability to, to, you know, to make that point, uh, I don't know. Uh, but you're in the right area and asking <laughs> the right questions. We think we may have the answers, but uh, we're not making the calls. Uh, Melvin had a question, Dan. He said, was Sua Cravens in the game during the last couple of Cal offensive drives? I say that because I did not see him, or perhaps I just missed it. And has Michael Hutchings been hurt since I've not seen him on the field in quite a while either? Yeah, Michael was out there. Uh, he definitely was out there. But, but Sua was out there. I, I mean, I, they may not have been doing as many things with Sua. I mean, he, he, he was more the designated blitzer than, you know, than anybody. Uh but, uh, you know, I think uh, probably if Sue is on the field, you're probably going to let him go make plays uh, rather than, you know, play it safe uh, with him. But, yeah, but, but Michael, was, Michael was definitely there. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, thanks for that one, Melvin. Frank at Orlando, we, we talked about this with Coach Hyde a little bit too, but wanted to get your thoughts. Um, I watched the Cal versus USC game, and I was embarrassed by the Pac-12 officials. The commentators on ESPN – were mocking officials at the amount of flags that were thrown. What got me was the play that the refs threw a flag and said they somehow the flag just came out on its own. What a joke. It's like the refs are looking for a reason to throw a flag and get on TV, that they want to call a flag on every play, and they're surprised if they don't get to throw a flag. And the touchdowns that were called back as well, very frustrating. Then I watched the Alabama versus Mississippi State game, and their refs stay out of the way and throw a flag only when they have to. Not when they want to. I'm sick of the Pac-12 refs, Frank and Orlando. Yeah, I mean, I would guess if you had a 25 penalty game in the SEC, they may not even find your body the next week. <laughs> they bury you in some uh, bayou somewhere, and uh, you had never, you'd never be heard from again. You would be literally gator bait. Uh, uh, yeah, it's amazing. What it tells you is. 
those guys keep doing it week after week after week in the Pac-12 because they clearly aren't graded down. I mean, if you turned in one of those games in the Big Ten of the SEC, you would get hammered. I mean, just hammered. They, I, I mean, I've gone to some of the officials' meetings in those leagues. They would kill you. In the Pac-12, it's obviously uh, not, uh, not penalized. These guys are obviously not graded down for some of the – I mean, if you called that uh, taunting play on Cody where he doesn't even turn his head. I mean, what did he do, yell through his ear hole uh, and said, yeah, uh, that call – I guarantee I don't think that guy would be allowed to show up the next week if at referee if he were in another league. But in the Pac-12, I don't know if he got a gold star or what. But uh, something's really wrong with the, uh, with, you know, with and it's been that way, you know, forever. They've had turnover. They've had, you know, since we've been there, three, four different guys in, at the top. Um, they've had uh, a number of new guys come and go. And nothing changes. I mean, and they stay, you know, with you know, penalizing teams more than anybody in college football, and it's not even close. Uh, you know, they just don't seem up to the job. And, uh, you know, it makes it really difficult to watch a game. I mean, you really do. If there's a punt, you know, a big punt return play or a big pass play, you, you find yourself not even able to enjoy the play because you're scouring the field immediately to see where the flag is because you just, you know, assume they can't go during a long play and, and, and not throw a flag, which tells me these are guys that aren't big enough for the moment. They're afraid they're going to get graded down or they're afraid. And so here comes the flag. Out comes the flag. As, as the guy said, the flag came out on its own. Uh, it's I mean, a Pac-12 flag. That's, that's what Pac-12 flags do. Yeah, uh, and It's like, do you, do you need to say out. Every time that the quarterback throws the ball away, do you need to say that it wasn't grounding for a certain reason? Like, I don't get that. No, I, no, I, I'm, you know, I know that, you know, they do that more, but they don't do it as, you don't hear that as much everywhere else as you do in the Pac-12. I mean, is this the uh, legacy of the glasses ref? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he, he got that mic and he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to, you know, give it up. Uh, luckily, you know, in, in a way he's retired, but, uh, um, you know, Still on Twitter. Now who say <laughs> he was not so bad. I mean, he was, you know, he'd get those bowl games and people, he, I remember the last one, he had one in Yankee stadium at that bowl game in Yankee stadium. And people were like, what the hell is going on? This is people from these other conferences who were, you know, befuddled. They'd never seen anything. Like it. I mean, somebody told me they watched every single SEC game Saturday, and they saw maybe one targeting penalty, as opposed to, you know, in the Pac-12. I mean, you're going to get three or four of those, you know, a week. Although they, I guess they had one last night in the um, in the Arizona State game where they called it. Then the guy in the booth not only overturned it in terms of tossing the guy out. He took away the 15 yards. It was like, what? You can't do that. I don't think. But actually, they changed that this year. So you, they, before, when they first did targeting, you could only review the, the uh, guy getting thrown out. Now you the disqualification. Now you can actually take the, the penalty away. So they, you actually can. Okay, that's yeah. the first time I've ever 
I've ever seen that actually, which is no surprise that the first time you'd see that done would be in the Pac-12. I mean, Certainly. <laughs> that's like, uh, well, of course, that's the first time, you, you know. But they okay, so that's that's legit this year. You're allowed to take yeah. actually take the yards off the the penalty as well. Yeah. Why do I think it's no surprise that didn't happen in a USC game on a USC penalty? Right. Just a guess. Exactly. Okay. Uh-oh. Well, yeah, I, I don't know what. I don't know if there's an answer. It's happened. It's gone like this for so long through so many different people. I, I don't know what. I don't know what explains it yeah. other than. They don't look like they're up to the moment, and they look like they're, you know, we don't like to see people coach scared. They look like they're officiating scared. Certainly. Um, All right, well, let's see. Let's look at uh, Eric in Virginia Beach wrote in, and he said, Another, there's another request to talk to the coaches, uh, Dan. I love these. Um, do you know any person or group of people that can quote unquote talk to Coach Sark and ask him if he's all, if he's ready to relinquish play calling duties? I only ask because I feel that uh, I'd like this experiment to end already. Looking at the history books for both college and NFL, it's rare that a national championship or Super Bowl champion was led by a head coach that also assumed offensive or defensive play calling. And he said the exception. Uh, being most recently Super Bowl victories by Green Bay and New Orleans. Maybe I'm more of a believer that the head coach should focus on only the offense or defense, but the not only on the offense or defense, but the entire management of the team and the game. If he, stro- if he so strongly needs to call plays, then step aside from head coach and go back to being an offensive coordinator. Or maybe it's more of my belief that one of the most important traits of being a leader, or in this case a head coach, is to empower the staff that people who quote unquote work for him. They usually uh, they usually positively exceed expectations. That's Eric in Virginia Beach. Yeah, I think Eric's got a good point, uh, especially with the kind of situation USC's got with such a young team. Uh, you have the benefit, for example, of uh, a carryover from last year. You've got Clay Helton, who you know ended up calling the plays, uh, and you know after Lane was gone, and did so quite well, and he was here, and you're the new head coach. You've probably got a whole lot of things to do with a really young team that's going to have to play as many true freshmen as USC is going to have to play, and uh, you know, and, and you're in a situation where you know to talk about the Pac-12 you're going to get called for a lot of penalties. I mean, I don't think there's any question. Now I think USC maybe, are they to, haven't, haven't checked the totals today, but I think they could be, uh, you know, the most penalized team in the Pac-12. And uh, uh, that might give you enough other things to do with, you know, setting up a new staff and all that to not want to have to worry uh, about, you know, calling the plays at halftime, to not have to be thinking about, where you're going with the play calling after intermission and all that. And, and, and just to, you know, if you need to really, uh, you know, counsel the defensive coordinator, for example, and that kind of thing, rather than worrying about your own, you know, offensive coordinator, coordinator's duties, uh, that would be my take on it. I, I would, I'd, I'd rather see it go that way. I just think there's an awful lot to being the head coach at the University of Southern California. And, um, and you probably don't have to be a coordinator. Now, Pete Carroll, you know, was able to be kind of his own defensive coordinator uh, for some of those years. Uh, Pete had been, you know, at it for a long time. And uh, and I think 
things probably weren't as complex. There weren't as many good teams in the Pac-12, you know, a decade ago. I just think there's just more, more stuff that you gotta, you know, just game management, uh, you know, timeouts at the end, getting that last. I mean, as we know this year, is getting those last couple of, you know, plays called exactly right or not making the big mistake or whatever. I mean, you know, and it's hard. Like Brian Kelly at Notre Dame made a, you know, giant mistake yesterday going for two points when it wouldn't have helped him, and he didn't get it, and they ended up, you know losing the way they did. Uh, there's a, it's a tough job, and uh, I don't know that you want to load it up with more things to do uh, than, than you absolutely need. So I, I tend to agree. Uh, I don't know if you know this one, Dan. And, I, and Actually, Coach Harvey Hyde talked to me offline about it because someone asked him, and he wasn't sure, and I didn't really notice it. Uh, it's about those guys that were kind of waving the towels on the sideline. D.C. wrote in and said, who are those hype men on the sideline, uh, the USC, that every time there's a play on the sideline, they come running over and go absolutely nuts? I mean, I like keeping the players amped up, but this is starting to look contrived. Um, and I don't know if they've changed it, if they're still standing on the benches kind of waving the towels, if you noticed anything different there. But I thought, thought I mean, just – I purposely it. try not to, but, but I did <laughs> notice yesterday that Alabama's kids were doing some of the same stuff on the sidelines. Hmm. So I guess it's the kind of thing – where if you look good and you win, nobody cares. And if you do it in games where you get beat at the buzzer, it looks really stupid and contrived. So yeah. I'll be honest, and I, since we don't follow as much the TV of the game, we don't get to see those where they zero in on, uh, you know, on the guys on the bench. If you're at the game, it doesn't come across that much. You know, you just, it's, there's so much going on on the field and on the sidelines. But I, if, you know, the TV wants to keep shooting them because it gives them, uh, you know, an interesting or a fun or a different shot, I could see how people at home would see that and think, oh, man, that looks contrived or that looks whatever. Uh, I wouldn't make too much of it. I, I, you know, I think, I think these walk-ons have done so much good for USC over the last few years. And, you know, and, and what USC has been up against, I don't care what they do on the sidelines. I think these kids deserve to, you know, have as much fun and do whatever they want. And I do think probably some of the, you know, uh, staff people are probably, you know, getting them going, some of the grad assistants and something like that. That doesn't bother me that much. It really, it really doesn't. Um, Tony, I don't know about this one either. It, it, it maybe someone can write in if you don't know. Tony Gomez wrote in and said, I know that USC is making changes to improve the fan experience in the Coliseum, but do you know why the USC band stopped sending a few band members to play in front of the fans by the tunnels during the games? I miss it. It was one of my favorite parts of the game. Keep up the good work. And I don't know, maybe because they're so far away now, but I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, that's a good question. I think partly that, that, you know, that uh, it's, a, it's a more, I mean, much more of a, a you know, a jaunt to get from the, the way they're located now because of the, you know, the stairs and what have you. And it was, I mean, it, it, those are, you know, the old, as much as you, you know, they can update this and update that. Those are the old style, narrow, uh, you know, walkways. And there just isn't a lot of room. Uh, I was always kind of amazed that they could do it, you know, the way they did it. And it was, it was kind of a neat thing, but I think you're probably right that uh, getting them, you know, back and forth from the, you know, where they are now with the um, the much more difficult, you know, 
you know, ingress and egress or whatever you want to say from from those stands to uh, to the main part of the stadium probably probably is a factor. Yeah, and if you're if you know stuff about the band, just write us podcast at uscfootball.com. And if you know why, let us know. And they very well could be doing that. I didn't. I haven't noticed because we're up in the press box. It's hard to see, but I assume that you know he's right and that they don't do that anymore. I but, haven't seen them do it this yeah. year. I mean, that's a good point. I I have not noticed. That. I I would I'd be surprised if they were. I, I I have not noticed that. No. I mean, part of the other thing reason is the video board now is so dominant. Yeah. And the sound is so dominant. There, there isn't as much opportunity during the game, I don't think, to have that you know kind of you know localized entertainment around the uh, the Coliseum. I mean, the video board is just you know it's fabulous in, in so many ways, but it's really loud and, and dominant, and there's not a whole lot of. I mean, for example, they'll be announcing. Uh, some stats during the press in the press box, say on a on a scoring drive, for example, and if it's at one of those moments where they're blasting out on the video board, you have no ability whatsoever <laughs> to hear the PA in the press box. Yeah. I mean, it's just gone. I mean, it's just nothing. It's white. It's white sound or whatever. It's just there's nothing there. That very well could be the reason too. All right. Well, yeah. Right. If you're in the band or know something, write us in and let us know. We'll read it on the next show. Uh, David actually sent this in a few weeks ago. Oh, we have this one and one more to get to. Um, he said, could you ask Dan about next year's schedule? Why are we playing two Sunbelt teams? Is one of them or both a replacement for a higher-profile opponent or a canceled game? So I didn't know if you knew about that, Dan, but I wanted to bring yeah, that I up. I was trying to think. Was that, the, was that Texas? Uh, was Texas canceled? Uh, excuse don't... me, you're not Texas. Texas A&M. Uh, but, um, what were the two games that got canceled with Texas A&M? And then Texas back to back. I guess Texas A and M, and I know they got a little. You know, they basically felt that there was kind of an edict put out by the uh, SEC not to play USC. I mean, they tried with everybody, and then um, yeah, it said so. There's yeah, no luck. Back in 2013, it was in May. There was a story that Texas A and M drops home and home. With USC, they were supposed to be. Um, the games were scheduled in 2009 and were supposed to take place in 2015 and 2016, um, but they switched from the Big 12 to the SEC. So that was that was right. one of them. So they did have Texas A&M lined up. Yeah, so that that made them scramble, I think, to get get the one game. And basically, uh, they had they had zero luck with the SEC. I mean, they came up with every excuse you could come up with under the sun, and they were going to get a you know return game from USC, and that's still they weren't coming. And uh, the Big Ten, I think they thought they were more optimistic about, and they got that home and home uh, you know with Minnesota, but um, it just didn't happen. I mean, they they heck they felt you know happy that they got Boston College, uh, you know, to come here. But they, they just haven't had much luck. I mean, that run was so uh, impressive to people. Everybody remembers, you know, during those two years, what happened to teams, you know, like Nebraska, like Auburn, like Arkansas, you know, when they played USC, and they just they weren't going to be part of that. They yeah. just said, no, <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing that. And uh, I think USC maybe got a little – Nervous that maybe we can't come up with, uh, you know, 
any one of those teams, and they went the way they did. But, yeah, it makes it kind of a, you know, for a, a program that he hasn't played down. You know, the only three, Notre Dame, UCLA, and USC, are the only three that have never, you know, played a team other than a, you know, a BCS, you know, caliber team or whatever you want to call them, uh, football, uh, bowl. FBS, yeah. Teams. FBS, the I FBS think they call teams. Them, yeah. Yes, yeah, the three of them are the only three that have never played below that. Uh, you look at you know the couple of teams that are you know on the schedule, and you think mm, they're getting they're getting closer, uh, you know, to it. But um, you just you do what you can do, and you know it's, you feel like you're part of the SEC uh, when you're uh, you know playing. Uh, I, I see next week Alabama's playing uh, Western Carolina, I believe. Uh, so <laughs> you know and. Coastal Carolina. I think it's Coastal Newberry. Carolina. They're not playing Wofford. They're not <laughs> playing, you know, uh, somebody – I saw Kennesaw State is starting football, and they probably are, have been scheduled by at least four SEC teams by now. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we'll see if the playoff thing changes that too because, uh, you know, Baylor was getting dinged, you know, because of, of their schedule, even though they had beaten TCU. So we'll – We'll see if that uh, changes going forward, but you know, USC's well, I mean, trying. My, my hope for the playoffs is that you know somebody gets aced out this year. Hopefully, not a Pac-12 team, but you know somebody in the SEC maybe gets aced out, or they all end up with a couple of losses, and and something really weird happens, and it forces them to, as you know, as as, as phony baloney as it was for them, you know, the presidents and all that, to say we're just going to go with four teams. It should be an 18 playoff. Yes. I mean, it's the only fair way to go. And the 18 playoff, you put the five league champs in automatically. No arguing, no, no meetings in Dallas. Pat can stay home. You know, you just take those five, and then your job is to pick the next three. And that's not, a, not as big a deal. Yeah. And uh, you let the leagues decide who their champ is, and that's who comes. And, and you get those five. And then you can talk about the other three, but that would be so much simpler, so much fair, and uh, you know you wouldn't have to go through all these gyrations that they're going through this year. I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of time that Pat has had to you know spend on it with all the other people involved and the the number. Of, I mean, they're watching games that makes no sense at all in terms of the uh, you know the final outcome, but they're acting like they've got to just you know touch every base and because they got to get it down to four and this is a year you couldn't get the i mean you're going to have trouble getting the uh pac-12 south to four teams right i mean <laughs> right now two weeks to go and there's five teams left i mean yeah. it's imagine you got the whole country i mean the one interesting thing is the pac-12 south has more ranked teams five than the big uh excuse me than the sec west that he has just four yeah. of its seven. That's amazing when you think about that. But uh, it also points out how difficult it is to get down to four teams because you really are comparing apples and oranges because these teams now play so few crossover games where you can actually get any sense of who's any good. I yeah. mean, you know, Northwestern beat Notre Dame just about the same as uh, Florida State did. Yeah. <laughs> and they beat them in South Bend. Yeah. You know? I mean, who knows? It's crazy. Uh, okay, well, yeah. we got one last one for you. It's a little long, so I apologize for that. But uh, 
what we want to talk about Josh Shaw and uh, our buddy JD in DC called in to ask about that. Critical of your stance, Dan. So I wanted to get your take on it. And here, here's the thing. Dan, JD from DC. Normally I'm rolling with whatever you say, but I think you've got a blind spot over this whole Josh Shaw saga. Surely you recognize Heritage Hall has been burned by this young man, that he engaged in a deliberate plan and strategic effort to lie to them. He threw USC under the bus to salvage his NFL draft chances. And I might add, interfere with official police investigation, which is very, very serious. When you lie to the police and orchestrate a cover-up, they will, quite understandably, exhaust every possible lead. Until the authorities, and that's not Bill Plaschke, not Josh's lawyer, and by the way, who is paying his fees, formally in writing and the investigation, or Josh and his girlfriend take a lie detector test, how can Heritage Hall reinstate him? If it comes out later on, he physically assaulted his girlfriend, and in California, even a scratch uh, could face him with felony charges in the Ray Rice era, particularly, even if she doesn't press charges herself. Nickius and Hayden can withstand losing to UCLA and Notre Dame, but their jobs would be in jeopardy if that's how it played out. Josh is a 22-year-old mature captain of the USC football team. Ask yourself, if he didn't have serious legal jeopardy, why in the world would he jump three stories out of a building? Most of us wouldn't do that unless our life depended on it. There's no evidence Josh is innocent other than his limited par statements, hearsay from the investigating officers about... um, what they're doing, and statements from family and friends who misled the police and the paid bloviations of his lawyer. And there's plenty of reason to suspect worse than he's let on. Okay. So <laughs> so in, in J.D.'s world, I don't know what world that is, you are guilty if J.D. suspects that there's something there. Guilty until proven innocent. Okay, I do know that probably is a, you know the way things work in some some parts of the world. This is not our world. JD acts like, for example, he knows that Josh lied to the police, or uh, that that happened. That didn't happen. Uh, uh, how JD thinks he knows that, I don't know. Uh, JD came up with all kinds of. Well, this could have happened, and that could have happened. Has J.D. talked to Josh? Has J.D. talked to his girlfriend? Does J.D. know exactly how that's all gone down? Does J.D. know that from everything we're hearing, the LAPD has absolutely no intention of pursuing any charges whatsoever? Uh, You know, we've heard that that that's been passed on to the DA and that everything is going to be dismissed. Uh, If that's the case, and if Josh did just make a terrible mistake in judgment. Terrible mistake in judgment. This is a kid that until then hadn't had a single you know, uh, mark against him at USC. It's almost as if all of the good things Josh did were wiped away. The other part of the problem that I have with the way this has gone down is USC's complicity in this case. It's clear. I would not have believed Josh. I didn't believe him. USC obviously didn't believe him if they went through all of the interviews that they tell us that they went through with Josh. What in the world did they put that story out for? That story never should have seen the light of day outside of USC. 
So I think USC, in this case, as much as they got misled by Josh, as wrong as Josh was, and I'm, I'm fairly confident in the fact that there is no there there in terms of whatever J.D. thinks Josh might have done with no evidence uh, to back any of that up other than saying, well, I wouldn't have jumped out. Well, you, you know, I, I saw either. I don't know. He was, he was, he was scared. He didn't know uh, who called the police. Uh, it, you know, his first instinct was to get the heck out of Dodge and find out what was going on. Uh, terrible, terrible, terrible mistake that nobody at USC could talk him out of that and that they then put that story out. I think USC is partially uh, you know, to blame for things getting out of hand as much as they did. So I just think USC has a duty to resolve this as quickly as they can to be part of the investigation, to not turn it over and say, well, whatever the LAPD does, that's fine with us. I think they have more responsibility to a student athlete who has represented USC as well as Josh has represented USC to be part of the process. It certainly looks to me like they passed it along from one, one part of the athletic department to um, you know, the university council to the president's office, back and forth and back and forth. Sure, none of them want to end up as the Roger Goodell and a Ray Rice scenario with a, uh, you know, some major, you know, evidentiary thing, you know, turning up later. But if they do their, you know, due diligence and they really vet this properly, I think it should have happened sooner. And, it, uh, you know, if, you know, Josh and his people weren't enough to be able to, uh, uh, you know, move the LAPD along, then I think USC really, I would have liked to have seen USC involved in getting this, you know, resolved one way or the other. I mean, I, and, and, and that's the thing that I just don't think it should have taken this long. And I think USC and not, not for any reason to win a football game and anything else, but just to be fair uh, to Josh, I don't think it's the kind of thing from everything that I know. And I probably know a whole lot more about it than you do JD uh, uh, for which Josh should lose his entire uh, you know, senior season. And, uh, you know, I think the point could have been made to Josh that if it's all about the NFL, as J.D. said it is, he hurt himself a lot more with the NFL by, uh, you know, by doing what he did and saying what he said than if he'd, uh, you know, come clean immediately. Uh, but uh, he didn't get the right counseling, I don't think, and, and the right advice. And, uh, and maybe that's, a, a you know, what happens when you have new coaching staff and they don't know him as well. He doesn't know them as well. Uh, but, uh, but I think there is some responsibility here for USC and I would have liked to have seen them, uh, resolve this, uh, you know, more quickly. I'm not saying resolve it in, in Josh's favor, just resolve it fairly, uh, you know, for Josh at this point. And, uh, uh you know, that's my disappointment here. That, that that didn't happen. I don't want them to go Jameis Winston, you know, on, you know, or, or do what Florida State does, for God's sakes. USC doesn't have those kinds of issues. It's pretty amazing uh, the way USC's kids, you know, you don't see, uh, you know, that kind of thing uh, happening. But USC almost acts like they've got to hide stuff because 
you know, it's like they're they're so on the defensive. They don't need to be on the defensive, I don't think. You know, see, handles these things, you know, really well in terms of they're not going to play somebody just to win a football game. Uh, that's not who USC is, and it's not what they do. And I don't think they need to act like they are. Uh, but they at times seem to act too defensively, and I think there are times you do need to do what's the right thing for the student-athlete, and that's what I would have liked to have seen done. Is it still possible? I don't know. It's really it's getting late in the game. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but we'll see. I mean, <laughs> there's still tomorrow. Yeah. Check the site for sure. We'll, uh, any updates we have, we'll, be, we'll have them up there on uscfootball.com. And uh, thanks for that, Dan. That was, I know, a long question, long answer, but I, I wanted to get that out there so people can kind of hear. Uh, you, you've been on top of this Josh Shaw stuff the whole time, so I wanted to, them to at least hear about it on the podcast. But yeah, I mean, it's just I wanted to be fair, with, fair for Josh. This isn't about football. I mean, I can see a way that – you know, it might be tough on the young guys who've been, you know, filling in this whole time uh, and the transition. It might not be easy for the coaches if he comes back. It might not be easy for anybody if he comes back. I just want to – whatever is is the fair thing uh, at this point in time, uh, you know, for everybody involved. Uh, I don't think there – for anything I know, there's no more there there in terms of the incident. I think it was one of those just you did all the wrong things. And uh, it just got away from you, uh, and that's too bad. But, uh, but I don't think there's been any misleading of, of the police or any of that kind of thing at all. Uh, not that I know of, uh, you know, that any of that has surfaced. Uh, there's been cooperation. Uh, I just I don't know that it, you know, we're now almost three months, and that just seems a little longer than it probably needs to, needs to be. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Dan, great stuff. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, everyone else. Thank you so much for tuning into the Peristyle podcast. We apologize. Didn't have a show last week when USC practiced on Monday mornings. We normally do the show. Uh, so we're back again this week. We'll do, we're going to actually do a uh, one with our counterparts over at Bruin Report Online. We're going to talk to uh, Dave Wood over there, get the perspective on UCLA with the USC-UCLA game coming up this weekend. So stay tuned for that. Later on the week, and uh, thanks to Coach Every High, Dan Weber. Check out uscfootball.com for more. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. Music